0: Good morning, Applewood family. And those of you who might be guests with us this morning, glad that you are worshiping with us. What do I do with my glasses? Uh oh. Uh oh. Never fear, my wife has a pair. Oh. Oh, I look so good in these zebra striping. What do you think? You don't look so good in these. <laughs> hey, I promised Sarah that I would give the important reminder. She and Chad are uh, visiting family this weekend. Our kiddos are going to be getting their Bible verse booklets, their scripture memory booklets for the year. I think they'll come out on uh, first Sunday in September. And we play an all-important part in that because we are the ones that encourage our children at Applewood Community Church tell me your scripture memory this week. So maybe you uh, encourage someone who's feeling a little shy, or there will be those who aren't shy. They will come busting up to you on a Sunday morning, say, can I tell you my scripture memory verse? And, of course, and uh, the idea behind that is to uh, let them recite what they're learning from God's word to you. Reinforce that and encourage and... uh, Perhaps we will even take that incredible step and do it with them. Oh, you found the real ones. Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Bob. You know, what's that? They have been. They have been before. You know, so far, you know, it's just the, uh, the, the magnifying glasses, and I... I spend a whopping dollar per pair at the dollar store. (laughs) I have them everywhere. And now my grandchildren break them. Who cares? I'll I'll buy more for a buck a pair. In a Christianity Today article from several years ago titled Unreasonable Doubt by an author named James Spiegel. He's uh, also professor of philosophy and religion at Taylor University. He quoted in that article... Two contemporary philosophers who have resisted, or at that time had resisted, belief in God for personal reasons, not just intellectual ones. Thomas Nagel, an atheist who authored a popular introduction to philosophy titled, What Does It All Mean?, wrote these words I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I I don't want the universe to be like that. 20th century ethics philosopher Mortimer Adler confessed to rejecting religious commitment for most of his life because, quote, it would require radical change in my way of life. A basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices, as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. He said those in reflection upon where he had been, and Spiegel notes in his article that after years of rejecting God... Adler was baptized at the age of 81 years old. Is that so cool? And in our study this summer of the different categories of of psalms, we've said from the beginning that, that the one thing that all of these psalms have in common is they assume the presence of God in all of life. And the assumption is not that he is just somehow casually present in his world, but intimately involved in the events and in the lives of his people. In other words, David kind of said this in Psalm 139, there is no way to get away from God. It is just not a possibility. And and we know that the Psalms have been a part of of Israel's worship for centuries. As a worship book, they, they offer us guidance. And I think they, uh, they give us permission in navigating some of the emotions of life as the people of God. We live with this awareness of God's presence, but we live in a world where there is mixed response to his presence. And so we have what can seem to, to many people this, this ridiculous confidence in the reality of God revealed in Scripture. A God who, who loves the people that he has created for himself. And, silly, we believe that life is really about Him. Everything that exists is sustained by His presence, and we were made for Him, He wasn't made for us. Psalms remind us that as the people of God, life is worship, and if God is what life is all about, then we need to bring Him into our thinking about everything. And the Psalms really, I think, uh, take us down that path. So, we're going to wrap up our series in summer psalms this morning, and we're going to look at Psalm 2. Now, you might remember that we started the series with Psalm 1, and I suggested to you there's kind of an umbrella psalm over the entire Psalter. It presented for us the proposition that there is either a right way to live or a wrong way to live. There there's really no middle ground that is given to us in Scripture. Either a person gives attention to God and His laws, and they find life in that, because that's what they were created for, or a person lives for themselves, which is a rejection of God and ultimately ends in disaster. And so after looking at some of the other categories of the Psalms that, that we have done in these Sundays together. It just seemed appropriate to me to end with Psalm 2 because it, <clears throat> it kind of returns us back to that theme of Psalm 1, but, but on a much grander scale. And it includes a Messianic theme, which many of the Psalms have. And there's, there's not really a, in terms of scholarly study, You won't find a category of Messianic psalm, but you will find the theme of Messiah woven into so many of the psalms. There's a story that's told about a revolutionary during the years of the French Revolution. Wanting to remove symbols of law and order, a man, the story goes, climbed to the top of Notre Dame and tore down the cross that was on top of one of the uh, the spires. So with the cross smashed to pieces all over the ground, he shouted boastfully to the crowd that was gathered, we are going to pull down all that reminds you of God. To which a voice came from the crowd in response, saying, then you might as well pull down the stars themselves. And it's, it's that kind of arrogance which is a source of both wonder and concern for the writer of Psalm 2. It's an example of what will be our last category for the summer, royal psalms. Now, they're, they're similar to the psalms that we referred to as the enthronement psalms. We looked at Psalm 97, psalms which exalt God as king, God as, as ruler of his world. Uh, God is the ruler of of nations and all people, ultimately. The, the enthronement psalms reminded us that God is worthy of respect because he is God. He is who he is, the creator. The royal psalms differ a little bit in, in their emphasis. There is a lot of the enthronement of God, but they, to be fair, and, and I think to maybe be textually correct, they, they began with an understanding of an earthly king. Uh, the royal psalms, when they talk about the coronation of the king and the, the rule of the king and the welcome of the king, if, if it's not specifically referencing <clears throat> God in the text, then it's probably true that for the people of Israel, these psalms were a reminder to them of the kings of both Judah and the northern kingdom, primarily of Judah. They understood those kings to be uniquely authorized and empowered uh, by God, by Yahweh, to, to lead his people. And as I mentioned, there's a messianic theme in all of or many of the royal psalms. In the years that followed the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened at the hands of the Babylonian Empire, Uh, which meant that was the end of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. About 600 years before the time of Jesus, many of these royal psalms, and we think that probably it began to develop into the years of the exile, they began to take on a messianic hope, uh, an an expectation surrounding what God would do. The people began to understand them as promises, promises, of what God would accomplish through his Messiah, his anointed one. But the kingdoms had come to an end at that point, and so that had failed. The the human kings had not been able to do that. The failure of of the, the human or the earthly kings turned, it seems, the hopes of God's people, in a very real sense, back to God. It's a theme that that we talk about as Christians. Hard times turn our attention can turn our attention to God and remind us of our need of Him. <clears throat> and that seems to be one of the things that that uh, that begin to to come into play in the development of understanding some of these themes as as messianic that that God is going to do something in the future through his anointed one. So this morning, <clears throat> for just a few minutes, I want you to imagine, if you can, that we're, we're not gathered at Applewood Community Church, okay? This morning, we are standing in the courts of the temple. Do you see it? See it? It's just, it's, it's a grand place, you know? Banners of worship hanging everywhere, stone and timber. It's somewhere around the 10th century, <clears throat> give or take maybe a century. Um, and King Solomon is probably on the throne. It's a prosperous time in the lives of the people of Israel. Uh, it's been a blessed time. There, there is still a, a, a united kingdom, although there's some fracturing beginning to kind of nibble around the edges of the kingdom. Uh, But there is no division into north and south, at least not yet. That's that's coming, but this morning, here we are, the united people of God in, in the temple, the courts of the temple. Now, there's a really important thing for you to remember, that as the people of God standing in the courts of the temple, you have a certain identity that sets you apart from all of the other nations. Do you remember what that is? What, what is your identity? You're chosen because you're a great people, right? You're a powerful people. You're, you're, you're just a, a large army of people. No, you know, you're shaking your head. Chosen by God just because he chose to display himself and his character and his love through you, the Israelite people. And so, as the people chosen by God, I think it's realistic that you, we would have a certain sense of confidence, maybe even a little pride. Not much, of course, because too much of that would be sinful. Just a little, perhaps, and that figures into the way that you express yourselves as you speak the words of this psalm together. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and <clears throat> we're going to do it in antiphonal style this morning, okay? So congregation one, you're over here on the left. Congregation two, you're over here on the right. There is no political suggestion in that <laughs> whatsoever. It is strictly a left and a right. So don't go there, all right? So, let's begin. Congregation one, you folks over here to the north. Here we go. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Congregation two, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry And your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. All together, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And all God's people said, Amen. "Amen." Go ahead and be seated. Good job, you Israelites. Did you hear the Levites standing around playing their stringed instruments? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to explain the projector and the screen. but Anyway, the psalmist asked the question, that, can we put that next slide up? Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? That seems to me to be a good question. So, turn to your neighbor, see what they think. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? Talk about that for a couple minutes. <laughs> All right, we ready to talk about it? Because you're talking about something. I'm thinking it, hoping that it's the question. What do you think? What um, What'd your neighbor say? Because that's what people do. <laughs> Big picture, long haul. There you go. Sure, sure. Because, as I mentioned, the, t- the time in history is, things are starting to get a little shaky around the edges of the empire. So, yeah. It's fair to think that that could be a piece of it as well. What else? Did they know? Did they know? Yeah. Good question. Good question. I just had this thought that that went off in my head. That it, this is just kind of a, a a side note, but maybe it's worth saying. I think Lee, did you say? People conspire against God in vain because he's in control. Something to that effect, it's, it's not going to turn out. Doug, did you say that? Okay. It is Doug, isn't it? Okay. Just one one check. I, I have trouble with the names from time to time. It, it seems to me that one of the things that really... Uh, what do I want to say, lends, lends weight to our belief in the sovereignty of God. In terms of it being legitimate, in terms of it being something worth giving our our life to, this is on the fly, so forgive me if it doesn't make any sense, but... We have to understand the sovereignty of God, which is his his control over his created world and, and universe as as flowing out of what scripture and especially Jesus reveal to us as perfect character as as a God who is ultimately a God of love, so that that what god what god does is he he gives himself and he acts and he controls sometimes immediately sometimes in the long term out of his character which is good and loving and faithful does that make sense i it, i think it's it's so important for us to understand that because One of the things that the Messianic theme does for us throughout Scripture, and there are different places in the the prophecies as well as we get an an image in Revelation, and we we read a little bit of that together this morning, that there is coming a, a time when God rolls up the scroll of history and there is a what John refers to as new heaven and new earth and it is it is this wonderful perfect place and the reason that it's wonderful and the reason that it's perfect is because there will be there will be in, the the in person presence of God and the lamb that we read about together earlier in that text from Revelation the messiah And the messianic age, which will last for eternity, is is a marvelous place. And it's marvelous because God is there in an unhindered way. Does that make sense at all? I think that that's really important, that we are clinging to the goodness and the faithfulness and the love of God, uh, even in a world where sometimes we are we are prone to wonder about all of that. And there is that sense of now, but not yet. There is a day coming where we will, we will we'll just be swallowed up in the beauty and the wonder and the love of who God is. Okay. That was just a little detour. But Messianic age and the promise of the Messiah and better things to come, it's, I think it's all, it's, it's grounded in that. So why do the nations conspire? People's plot in vain. Simple answer, like what Dud says, because that's what people do. There is something resident I think, in, in every human heart that does not want to be told what to do. We, we, don't, we don't want to be wrong, especially if you know, we've given all of our life to something that is, we think, very good. But if God is not included in that, if God has not been the focus and the driving force behind that, then scripture says that's living life for oneself and and that is the wrong choice and nobody wants to be wrong i don't want to be wrong which one of your daughters jill and lee was it that said you're not the boss of me yeah yeah Yeah. and she was little at the time yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) to which i think jill responded oh yeah yeah i am you know it's that sense, you're, you're, you're not the boss of me. There's something in the human heart that wants to be you know, autonomous, uh, which literally means self-law, a law unto self. I think that's why it's good to read Psalm 2 and, and, and Psalm 1 together because the three verses that are at the beginning of this psalm express the heart of those who, who choose not to live according to god's law there there is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live and and that truth simply doesn't sit well with with many a human heart we don't want anyone to be the boss of us we want to be the boss of us we know as the people of god that that true life and freedom ultimately only come to those who honor god and put him where he belongs and that is front and center of the stage of our lives as the sole object of of our life of worship and we know that right yeah we know that so did the israelites we we don't always do it as well as we do at other times the israelites were the same way called to be a people of god in a very pagan and hostile world they were they were commanded by God because of his choice of them to live by a different standard than the rest of the nations and people groups around them. They were, they were going to now live according to <clears throat> the laws of God who was the creator so that God's blessing would be upon them as a result of their obedience and their commitment to him. And <clears throat> in answer to your question, Monica, I think sometimes it was clearer than others when they were living in those ways, in ways that brought honor and blessing to God, God's intent was is that, that that would become attractive to people. Oh. Wanting to know this, this God of Israel. I think that's, at least in part, what is going on behind, I kind of think it's amazement in these verses you know why do these people insist on living life their own way why do these people constantly strive to throw off the chains and the fetters that god uses to capture the human heart for himself chains and fetters were 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 instruments that were used then and still used now in some circles to keep animals from 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 kicking and and straying and hurting themselves the psalmist is suggesting that that the laws and the commands of god They're for people's good and their safety and their blessing. Again, if God is good, then the laws that come from his heart are are good. They are for the good of the creature. They're not bondage from which to be set free. God's intent is that people live out the purpose for which they were created and that, as I've said so many times, is in a relationship of love and intimacy with him. And his law was the guide for how that should be done. So I'll bet you know people like this, don't you? I do. Constantly striving to live life the way that they choose. And, and they're, not, they're not interested in the things of God. Or they're, they're casually interested at, at best And you may find yourself thinking, why? Why do they insist on living this way? Don't they know that there is a better way? Don't they understand that God is in control and they would be so much better off just surrendering to his loving and gracious control? (laughs) You know, this comes as no secret to you. We live in a culture that would have us believe that the true happiness comes through personal freedom. I mean, I, our nation was founded on the, the, the rallying cry of Patrick Henry, right? Give me liberty or give me death. We are, we are freedom people. And in our modern culture, the rallying cry is, is often, give me liberty and everything else that I deem necessary to make me happy. That's the culture in which we live. And... It's to that what I think can be a rebellious human spirit that this psalm offers a response and a warning. I call the response God's ultimate response, verses 4 and 5. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath. It is a message that says, ultimately, God wins. Always, God wins. Now, it's possible that you might respond to those words kind of like I do. I'm not sure I like the choice of words that the psalmist used. Kind of sounds like an earthly king staring down his opponents. You know, the image of God laughing and and scoffing. But what we don't want to miss is the intention behind the words. The psalmist is clearly communicating the message that God's power is so great and his control is so secure, his position is so secure that that he is never concerned about those who rebel against him. I am concerned about those who rebel against him. And truth be told, I'm more often than not concerned about them because of the impact it'll have on me. But I think where we want to get to is to become a people who who understand these texts through the additional blessing and light of the Messiah and the life of Jesus and recognize the opportunity for all to... Come into that relationship with God through Him. I, as I thought more about it, I, I've I've become more comfortable with with those words because it, it it inspires confidence for me to to face this increasingly difficult world in which we live. The thought of God just being so. Powerful and so in control and so secure in who God is that there is just, there's just laughter over the stuff that goes on in this world that, that threatens me and that threatens you. <clears throat> the psalmist says, our God is enthroned in heaven, which, by the way, is not a statement of he's far away. It's a statement of he is clearly seeing everything that goes on. And he's in control, even though it may not always appear that way. Verses 7 and 8 capture a vivid picture for us of the final rule of the Messiah. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession." You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Again, language that would have been thoroughly couched in the experience of of human kings. I think that they would have understood that as as perhaps the rule of David, the the Davidic Empire, uh, the legacy that that God was building for himself through that. we We don't know who penned this psalm. Might have been David who wrote it, but but it didn't happen in history the way that it is spelled out for us in those verses. And so after the exile to Babylon, after Jerusalem fell, many of the Israelites were killed, many were, were deported to Babylon, they began to, to see this as a prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah. There, there will come a day of accounting. When the anointed one brings judgment, dashes them to pieces like pottery with his ruling scepter. According to the psalmist, and and it takes his rightful place, the anointed one takes his rightful place as ruler of the earth. This is God's ultimate response. It is certain and it is unchanging. And so... I think an important question that we want to ask ourselves as the people of God is whether or not our lives give witness to what we believe. Does your life, does my life give evidence in the way that I live that, that this is what I believe? Are, are we living in such a way that, that those who know us know that, that we believe this about God, that that life lived for God brings the reward of life with God. And those that choose not to live with God will will eventually face destruction. And so there is this response of God to the, the attitude of the human heart, And there is a warning of such importance in the psalm. It's a language of pleading and urgency. We read this, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with with trembling. There, There is a sense there that that this this one is, is so great that to be in his presence can be a frightening thing. And then, these words, kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Now, the Israelites would have clearly understood what it means to serve the Lord, to to celebrate his presence with a sense of fear and trembling. You you remember the history of the people as as they came out of Egypt, rescued in miraculous ways by God, and then standing, gathered around, camping around the base of Mount Sinai. And God called, Moses to come up, and the mountain trembling, and lightning, and thunder, and, and all kinds of stuff, just shaking the mountain, the scripture tells us. And the people of Israel are really happy for Moses to go up there, <laughs> and be their representative. And so there, there are times when the people really clearly understand uh, the the awesomeness of God and what it means to be in his presence. So they would understand what it means to serve the Lord. But but kiss his son, that's an interesting phrase. And truthfully, they would not have linked this to Yahweh because their theology did not include the Trinity unless they would have been thinking in terms of the king on the throne in Jerusalem as, if you will, God's son, God's family. There's all kinds of speculation. Commentators agree that that this is an image of honor to the son showing respect and reverence that is due him. We think of it, we would think of it, as as kissing the ring finger of royalty or, or, or the feet of royalty. But, but to the ancients, to the Israelites, God had no son. So it would have been seen as, as a human son if it was seen that way at all. But we, we don't know who, we don't know when. Perhaps Solomon. But for the modern reader, you and me, included in this ancient pre-Jesus psalm is a warning, I think, that takes on special significance for those of us who live on this side of the cross and we have the, the, the blessing of looking back and seeing all that has unfolded. We, we read into this warning to kiss the sun. The word of Hebrews about the sun being the divine radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of God's being. John's words that, that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus' own words about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We we have the blessing of of taking a a statement like this that's so obscure in terms of its meaning to the ancient mind and we see clearly that this is a theme of Messiah that would have come probably a, a thousand years after the writing of this psalm. It's Jesus, the eternal Son, sacrificed for the sin of humanity, sacrificed for the very hearts that that complain against God, that conspire against Him and His people. The The very hearts that say, I don't want you or anyone to be the boss of me. We we see God unfold this plan of salvation which is focused upon the Son, the second member, if I can say it that way, of the Trinity taking on flesh and becoming the perfect sacrifice, becoming the final sacrifice for people then and now that the law would never save. This is a remarkable statement in Scripture. Kiss the Son. So, let me close with another question. Are our lives giving witness to others, as I asked a moment ago, of what we believe, but specifically, are our lives giving witness to to our belief in Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Now, I think this is a question of how you kiss Jesus in your life. How do, do I kiss Jesus with my life? I thought about this throughout the week. And there are, there are a couple of kisses that come to mind in the Gospels. You remember the woman who came in unannounced and uninvited to the meal at which Jesus was present, had been invited there by a Pharisee. And here comes this unworthy woman all kinds of stories about who this, in, in church history, who, who this woman may have been. And she broke the expensive jar of perfume, poured it on Jesus, spent her time at that dinner party on her face, weeping, wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. Kissing his feet, wiping his feet. That's one way that people kiss Jesus. That sense of, oh my, what he has done for me. On my face, in incredible humility and ultimate honor of the Son. Another kiss in Scripture, probably one that is a little more familiar to everyone. Judas. Judas kissed Jesus. Judas kissed the Son. He didn't fall on his face. He didn't kiss his feet. He gave him the proverbial peck On the cheek, the standard greeting of the day, to the one who is the Lord of glory, to the one whom Paul says is the creator of everything, by whom everything was made. Judas planted a casual kiss on his cheek. I found myself thinking, those, those two kisses, they, they kind of describe the, the possible attitudes or life posture of humanity. We can kiss the sun on his feet. We can fall before him in that sense of awe and wonder and amazement at what he has done for us, or we can casually kiss him on the cheek now and again. You know, if we read into this, sort of the, the rules of royalty, no one in their right mind would have kissed the son of a king on the cheek. No one in their right mind would kiss the king on the cheek without an invitation into his presence. It would have been the last thing that they ever did on this earth. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Live lives that show how much we value and treasure in. Honor the one who gave himself for us. May our lives not be seen by others as casual towards Jesus. Oh yeah, great guy, done a lot for me. Yada, yada, go on with life. No. May they see him as the one to whom we have a keen awareness. We owe everything to him. He is everything. He is Life. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we are blessed to have so much history contained in the word that you have preserved for us tells us of people who were chosen and loved by you, people who often lived in great blessing and often found themselves in disaster. All of it, it seems, related to how they chose to respond to who you are and your gracious offer of life. Isn't that so true of us? And people in this world today, you have, have extended a, a gracious offer of life through the sacrifice of your son and, and, and we at our best moments, oh, we're so thankful for that. And, and we are on our faces kissing his feet in love and respect and yet uh, there is that thing that rises up in our hearts from time to time where we forget that life isn't about us and we live as it is and we minimize and, and potentially we bring great dishonor to the Lord Jesus in the way that we live. We never want to be those people. And Yet we recognize that sometimes we are and we recognize that there is an entire world that is filled with people who have rejected you. Yet, oh God, it is is by your grace and it is through your forgiveness and your love and your mercy that you still invite us back into your presence. May we be a people who who always arrive in your presence uh, with the proper posture in our lives, uh, the proper kiss, if you will. And may we be a people who as we live that life, make you attractive to others. May they see in us a a, a seriousness about you. May they see in us an an urgency that others would know our glorious God who has revealed himself through Jesus, his son, our savior. For your glory and for your praise, uh, that is who we want to be. Thank you for the Psalms that guide us in a life of worship, that uh, help us navigate the emotions of life and give us permission to be honest with you about our feelings and our uncertainties and our worries and our anger and all that comes from life in this world. May we be a people who constantly find ourselves before you giving all of who we are to you so that you will continue your gracious work of transformation in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray.